0: Thank you, Matt. As we enter into God's Word this morning, you'll want to keep your Bibles open there to Genesis 3. We'll look at a few other passages as well, but uh, primarily focused right here as we begin this new Christmas series together. A little different kind of thing for Christmas this year. Um, To begin this new series, The Biggest Story, you know, we come to this time of the year uh, every year, and and we're reminded of... uh, The fact that our Savior was born some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. We remember angels and shepherds and wise men. And and we remember the fact that uh, Christ was born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn. As we consider these things, I'm afraid we often forget that this story, the Christmas story, is part of a much bigger story that God has been telling ever since the world first began. In fact, we could say it's part of the biggest story that's ever been told. So this year as we celebrate the birth of Christ together as as a church family, here's what I want to encourage us in. Let us seek to see his cradle in light of his creation of the entire world. To see his cradle in, in light of the corruption that came into the world as a result of sin. To, to see his cradle in light of the covenant promises that God made and continues to keep even in our day. But let us seek to see his cradle in light of his cross. To see his cradle in light of his church and also to see it in light of the consummation of all things that God is bringing about in his promise to complete as only he can. You see Christmas is much bigger than we often understand. We see activity scenes and we and we see and the lights and the presents and all that goes on for a short span and we oftentimes forget that not only is that much part, part of a much bigger story, but that we are a part of this story through our faith in Christ. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the story this morning. We're going to talk about the first good news there in Genesis 3.15, which is a little ironic because it comes right in the midst of some really bad news. The bad news is that the perfect creation that God had made was corrupted by our sin. You said, well, wait a minute now, Pastor. That wasn't my sin. My name's not Adam, nor is it Eve. And yet I would help you to understand that the book of Romans reminds us that when Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam. And what that means for us, practically speaking, is had it been you or I in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing that Adam did. You say, well, I'm not that dumb. Well, sin says we all are. We are all dumb enough that we've rebelled against the Holy God. We have proven the fact that we are sinners, not just born with a sin nature, but choosing to sin against the Holy God, to go our way, to do our own thing, to reject His law and His goodness and His grace in our lives. And because of that, like every good father who disciplines his children, God here in Genesis chapter 3 brings consequences. Brings consequences into the world sin always has consequences and rightfully so god would not be a holy good and loving god if he did not bring judgment for sin so what are all these consequences let's look again at verse 15 here's what i want you to see this morning god himself Speaking here to this serpent who has tempted Eve, who has eaten the fruit and given it to her husband who was with her, the whole world has now been corrupted by their sin. God steps in and says, I will. This is a promise. Notice it. It's a promise when God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his so let's break down this promise that God's making here and see some truths that are, that are laid out from the very beginning, the first good news. First of all, we're reminded that we live in a perpetual hostility, a system of perpetual hostility exists in our world. Now, it shouldn't take long for us to agree that that's true. I mean, turn on the evening news and what do you find A whole lot of bad news. We hear about wars and shootings and and murders and and all kinds of hostility, um, person-against-person hostility rules and reigns in our world. And we act as though sometimes it's something new. We see the latest atrocity and we act as though this is something radically different than what's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. But we shouldn't be surprised, church, that horrible things happen in our world because we've chosen to sin against our holy God. And all the suffering, all the death, all, all the murder, all, all the things that, that make the headlines and, and, and diminish the joy in our hearts when we see them, all these things have come into the world as a result of our sin against God. That's a basic understanding of the world that we need to have as followers of Jesus Christ. We live in a, in a system of perpetual hostility. And so it will be until the end. Now, as we think about this system of perpetual hostility in our world, that our world is radically broken due to the effects of sin, let's talk about where this all started. Let's talk about the source of the war in which we live. And and I want you to understand this morning that the source may be a little off-putting. As we think about the source of the war between good and evil and the war in which we in the world in which we live, as we look at our broken world and we begin to understand that there will always be until Christ returns hostility between the forces of good and the forces of evil, that there's this war will continue between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman who would be our Savior. As we look at these things, let us understand this morning that the source of the war is in fact God Himself. Now automatically, for some in the room, you're going, now wait a minute. I don't like that very much. Preacher, are you telling me that the source of all the hostility and conflict and good versus evil garbage going on in our world is God Himself? I'm not telling you that. Genesis 3.15 is telling you that. Look what He says. He speaks to the serpent who has lured the woman into sin. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now we could be quick to say, I don't know if I really like that God or not. Preacher, are you telling me that all the struggles that we experience came as a result of the actions of Almighty God? And I'm saying to you unequivocally, yes. And rightfully so. You see, sometimes we have this diminished little picture of God that is less than what the Holy Scriptures put before us. We, we, we have kind of a Santa Claus picture of God. He would never do anything that would, that would harm anyone. It's just going to be kind of give us everything we want. It, it's the, the cosmic vending machine version of God. We put in good things and expect to get good things back. And we divorce that from the fact that what God is doing here from the very beginning is He is doing what God always does. And so that begs the question, what does God always do? God is purposed with one main thing, and this is it. You want to know why God does what He does in your life or in any other life or in any other instance in all of creation? Why does God do what He does? For the display of His own glory. And rightfully so. Church, don't miss this. We're so quick to talk about how God does everything. We run to Romans 8.28. God does, works everything for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And is that true? Yes, it's true. But you've got to go to Romans 8.29 to see what is the purpose. What is the purpose? And the purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so our good God will allow horrible things to exist in order that we might see the greatness of His glory. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean Genesis 3.15. God says, here's what I'm going to do. You sinned against me. You rebelled against me. And as a good father, I'm going to step in and I'm going to put in place this thing called hostility, called enmity. The war between good and evil began right here in this moment. And ultimately what God is doing, please don't miss this, Because you misunderstand the entire Bible when you put us at the center. When you act as though everything that God is doing is for our good and you omit His glory, you miss the whole point that everything that God does is for the display of His glory, and rightly so. Who else deserves to be glorified? Now I know our sinful nature in us pretends as though we deserve glory, but it's not true. We've walked in Romans 1. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've served created things, even served ourselves rather than the Creator who is meant to be forever praised. And so here's what God is doing here in Genesis chapter 3. He is establishing the fact that good and evil would be at war until the day He said enough. And that's important. Because it's establishing the fact that God is in control. Once again, it's not God looking at what Adam and Eve did and eating the fruit and going, oh no, what do I do now? They've messed everything up. What do I do now? No, He already had in place the plan that would ultimately demonstrate His glory in a way that nothing else could. If there was another, we think, well, surely there could have been another way. If there was another way to rightfully display the glory of God and attain the greatest good for His people, then God would have done that. Because he is also ultimately wise. He was not got caught off guard. And he is the source of the war. But as we talked about in our Galatians series, here's what we find. We enter into this world on the losing side of the battle. The Bible says that we're born with this thing called a sin nature. And you say, well, what could I do about that? I was born that way. Well, not only were you born with a sin nature, but you also chose to sin against God, just like our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, just like those folks chose to sin against God. So we choose to sin against God, to break His law, and thus to break His heart. And as a result of that, we find ourselves on the wrong side of this battle. In fact, the Bible refers to those who are apart from Christ as children of the devil. Jesus Himself said to the religious people of His day who considered themselves children of Abraham, No, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of your father the devil because you take the laws of God and you twist them for your own purposes. So how then do we get on the right side of the war? Well, we are enlisted in the battle on the right side when we trust in Christ. When we trust in Christ, when we put into operation this thing called faith, where we turn from our sin, turn from our rebellion against God, and turn toward God and are clothed in His righteousness, then we are enlisted in the battle. We're not freed up from the battle. That's what the false gospel of our day says. The prosperity gospel that's preached in so many pulpits today says, trust in Jesus and then everything will go well for you. Then you'll be at peace. And everything will be fine. You'll get everything that your heart ever desired. You see, they get Romans 8.28, but they refuse to go to Romans 8.29 and recognize that the purpose of God is to conform us to the image of His Son who endured suffering and pain in a way that we cannot yet begin to understand. We're enlisted in the Bible when we trust Christ. We're not promised that everything will go well for us. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. In this life you will have trouble, Jesus said. The Apostle Paul said anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. Those are promises of Scripture related to our suffering, but it shows that our suffering is not meaningless. Our suffering is immensely meaningful in this life because God is doing Something And so we're encouraged in Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, we've been given something that Adam and Eve didn't have. We've been given the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He reminds us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So whatever disaster is happening in your life right now, whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever travesty, Understand this morning that you, if you are walking with Jesus, if you're trusting Him by faith, and yet your world, your life seems to be falling apart, God has purpose in. And the battle is not against the flesh and blood enemy that you think is the cause. The battle is against spiritual forces that are happening. Unseen things are taking place. And you are a part of, if you're walking with Jesus, you are a part of a spiritual battle that began in Genesis chapter 3. And praise be to God, if you're walking by faith in Christ, you are on the winning side of that battle. Even though you may feel a lot of days like it's a losing battle. It's beyond your feelings. It's about faith in Him. Trusting Him. And so let's talk some more about Him this morning. In the next part of Genesis 3.15, we see the pierced heel of the Savior. God says, I'm going to erect hostility here between your offspring, Satan, and between her offspring, Satan. And literally it's between your seed and her seed. And the Hebrew word there is singular, which is referring to not the collective body of followers of God, but but to one in particular, to one descendant that was going to come from the line of Adam and Eve, that was going to come into the world. But he says something really interesting here, and I want you to note, it's the seed of the woman. Who would bring salvation? Now that's odd. If you, if you look at the Old Testament, whenever the term seed is used in terms of offspring, it's always used in reference to the seed of the man. Now we won't get into reproductive stuff this morning because we have children in the room. But what we will say is there's something reproductively that makes sense in that regard. But here he's saying it's not the seed of the man that through which the Savior is going to come. It's what? Look what it says. The seed of the Of the woman between your seed and her seed, between your offspring and her offspring. And then to make sure that we understand that this is referring to a singular individual, he says in the next part, and he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. By the way, think about the Christmas story. Think about how God ultimately sent his son into the world. Was it not through the womb of the Virgin Mary that God's Son came through the woman, apart from any connection to her husband, and that he was given by the Holy Spirit implanted into Mary's womb? And it was something that reminds us of this first promise in Genesis 3:15. Isn't God good? to lay these little kernels of truth from the very beginning that when we get to the New Testament, when we get into Matthew and into Luke and we see what God brings to fulfillment, that we can look back and say, man, He saw, He said that it was going to be the seed of a woman. It's the only time in the Old Testament, every other time when you see seed referring to offspring, it's always the seed of the man. But right here He says, no, it's going to be something different here. Something strange and unordinary is going to take place. The virgin will be with child and you shall call his name Jesus. But also be reminded, church, that he would be wounded for us. That his salvation, the salvation he came to bring would not be without great cost. He says here in Genesis 3.15, you, Satan, you shall bruise His heel. There would be a wound, but his wound would not prove fatal forever. There's two woundings here that take place. This one would not prove fatal forever. Go to Isaiah 53 and you'll find these words. Surely he, referring to the same one here as in Genesis three fifteen, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes. We are healed. And you fast forward just a couple of verses and you find verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. We struggle with that. The will of the Father to crush His own Son. And yet why? He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He will be stricken in the heel, and death will occur, but death will not be the end. Do you see it there in Isaiah 53? Again, a foreshadowing of what the Lord was going to bring to pass in the days of Jesus Christ. That He was going to experience a death that should have been ours. That He was going to take our place at the cross. That the wound He endured was not a deserved wound, but it was a divine wound. In that. And that the Lord God Himself, His own Heavenly Father, had to creed that it should be so from the very beginning. Don't miss it. This was always the plan of God for your salvation and for the display of His glory. And we finished this morning speaking a moment about that pulverized head of that old serpent. He says, yeah, devil, you're going to get your shot in. You will strike Bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Note, first of all, the surety of the wind. And he's saying here, this is going to take place. There's a sure wind here. For the people of God. Let me just say something about this that's so important in the day in which we live. There is so much of a, a dualistic mindset that's erupting in our culture right now. In fact, two weeks from now, the biggest movie of the holiday season is going to be Star Wars, okay? So Star Wars Part 27 or whatever number we're on by now it's coming out here in a couple of weeks. And Star Wars is grounded in a dualistic understanding of the world. You've got the dark side and the light side, and they're kind of a yin-yang kind of thing where they both seem to kind of be equal in power and you're not sure exactly who's going to win out and you're wondering who's going to go where and what's going to happen and there's this back and forth back and forth and you really hope that the light side's going to win because we always want the good guys to win why do we want that because god gave us that desire why do we love the hero story where good wins? Because God gave us that desire, and He is the hero. But in Star Wars, there's this back and forth, this dualistic balance, and we love it so much because it seems to it seems to resemble the world in which we live. There's a whole lot of good and there's a whole lot of bad and it's back and forth and in and out and we don't exactly know what to do with it all and we uh, hope that good is going to win out in the end but we're not really sure, are we? Because we have in our mind this idea that good and evil are fairly equally balanced. And it really could go either way, right? No. No. That's where the power of the scripture steps in and says we do not live in a dualistic world where good and evil are balanced out and one could just as easily win as the other. No, God has already told us from the beginning of the battle who's going to win. Because the author of everything that is good would be stricken for our salvation, and the author of everything that is evil would be crushed and destroyed forever. That's the end of the story. And it's not even a contest. By the time we finish this, this series, we're going to find ourselves in Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to see the end of this story. We are going to see this snake crushed by the snake crusher. We are going to see that when he raises up, when the snake raises up, when the devil raises up the greatest army that he could have amass, in one strike, he is destroyed by our God. We do not live, folks, in a dualistic universe. We live in a world where God rules and reigns, where He is sovereign over all things, and we can trust Him that the the victory has already been won. I know it doesn't feel that way sometimes. I know that there are days and there have been so many moments in our culture over the last few months. When we look at the destruction from hurricanes and shootings and all manner of atrocities that make the headlines. There's a place where we could easily fall back into dualism and think, well, it could really go either way. And the Bible is saying to us, no, it could not because the promise of God holds true. The surety of our win relies solely upon the promise of Almighty God. That's why your God needs to be bigger than your imagination. That's why you need the Word of God to reveal to you a God that is greater than your understanding. And I know we're so quick to say, well, yeah, when we get to heaven, we'll understand everything. We'll have it all figured out. By the way, you won't. You will never know the fullness of the mind of God because He is infinite. And by the way, you won't get there and have your list of questions to ask. All those questions will be utterly ridiculous. In fact, I'm convinced by the time we get there, we'll recognize all the questions that we thought we were going to ask will be utterly nonsensical. And we'll understand we've been thinking about the wrong thing all along. And all we need to know is that our sovereign God has got this. He is trustworthy. He is faithful to His promise. He has never yet failed, nor can He. How would God fulfill His promise? I love what Kent Hughes said. He said, God's curse upon Satan meant that His own Son would one day become a curse for us. Satan would strike His heel, but the wound received would mean that the Son would strike a death blow to Satan. That's what was happening at the cross, folks. Grace is rooted in Christ's victory. This is what we rejoice about at Christmas. Not lights and packages, not even nativity scenes and special... Christmas services. It's none of those things. We rejoice in the fact that the one who was born in the barn in Bethlehem and laid in the feeding trough was the king of glory. He is the promised one from Genesis 3.15 who would come. The descendant of the woman, the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of that old serpent that had led all of us astray in rebellion against God. And he would make a new way for people to become the children of God. He would set before us the markers of repentance and faith from the very beginning of His ministry in Mark chapter 1. You see Him calling people to repentance and faith. Calling them to turn away from their sin. To turn away from following that old serpent. And to trust in Christ. He he never once called them to add unto His work what they had done. He doesn't call them to be good boys and nice girls. He comes to them and says, it's because of your rebellion against God. God in the flesh came to dwell among us full of grace and truth. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And He is the one who struck the death blow against our greatest enemy. You see... Satan's wound will prove to be finally fatal. it's already been struck. Even now, understand that Satan is bleeding out. I don't want to be too graphic, but I do need to be a little graphic this morning for you to understand that what happened at the cross in the death of the Son of God for us, that we might be saved. What happened at the cross was not the death blow to him, but the death blow to Satan. Because three days later, when he rose up from the grave, it was in utter victory. And in that moment, we begin to understand that that was the beginning of the end for the greatest enemy of mankind. That was the beginning of the end. And if we want to be on the winning side, the side that has already won and will one day put on full display the victory, if we want to be on that side, then it is through faith in Christ that it will happen. So we'll conclude this morning with Romans 16. The Apostle Paul writes, For your obedience is known to all. He's commending the persecuted church at Rome, the church that suffered much for the cause of Christ. He says, I know your obedience is known to all. They know what kind of church you are, how you stand firm in the midst of suffering. He says, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And then listen to this promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What do you think he was thinking of? Genesis 3.15 See, remember that first promise that God made when sin came into the world. Remember, remember that it still holds true. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory, and in by faith we are in Christ, the snake crusher, and we are a part of the victory. So much that we can claim the last part of the verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with us. We can rest in the grace of God, knowing that the victory has already been accomplished. We can rest in the grace of God knowing that the snake has already been defeated. And yes, there is still the struggle. Yes, there is still the the law of sin and death enacted in our world. But time is ticking. And when He comes again, and He will. By the way, when we remember Christ's first birth, we always need to remember this thought. He is coming again. And when He comes again, it will be no more baby in a manger. It will be the King of glory on His white horse. And He will be coming in utter victory. And there will be no more death or crying or pain. Those things will passed away and he will enact his rule and his reign and those who have trusted him by faith who have become God's children through faith in Jesus Christ will rule and reign with him forever so that what seems so big now, what seems so big in your life right now, that diagnosis that seems so big in your life right now, that family issue that seems so big in your life right now that job issue that seems so big in your life right now, that debt, whatever it is that seems so gigantic in your life right now, the Word of God is saying to you today, your God is bigger. And He has invited you to be a part of the biggest story. And you take up your place in that story as you walk with Jesus. As you walk in victory over sin and Satan and one day what is now believed by faith will become sight and the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet church this draws us to hope not a hope so but the certainty of hope that's found in Christ alone so I must ask you today do you know him? Do you know the one promise in Genesis 3.15? And in Romans 16 and in Isaiah 53 and in Revelation 20, I could go on and on this morning. All the promises of God find there, yes. Find there, amen, in Jesus Christ alone. Do you know Him? I'm not asking do you know about Him. I'm asking do you know Him? and the power of His resurrection, If you trusted Him by faith to conquer sin and Satan in your life and to give you the salvation that only He has the right to give because He bought it with His blood?